From Relay FM, this is Upgrade Episode 442. Today's show is brought to you by Rocket Money and Ladder. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. Shout out to our friend James Thompson as we do every 100 episodes when we hit 42. There you go. It's nearly James's birthday, so this is an early birthday present to James Thompson, creator of Pika. Happy birthday, James Thompson. Is it a momentous birthday? Is it a big birthday? Who could say? Who, uh, they're, they're, all, they're all momentous Yeah. when you get to this age. Psst, it is. It is. <laughs> I have a hashtag Snell Talk question, or AKA just Snell Talk question. I'm still trying yes. to work the hashtag out of my vocabulary. Phil asks, Jason, if you podcast in your garage, does your car always have to live outside? I haven't parked my car in, garage, in my garage for years. California, baby. Um, mm-hmm. my, our cars are wet right now. But yeah, we bought a we bought a minivan in 2010. Are you having the rain that oh, I'm seeing well, everywhere? Blue, well, you know, Still Talk is not supposed to be about weather, Mike, but uh, blue sky right now. But yeah, we've had an enormous amount of rain. Enormous, okay. enormous amount of rain. Um, washing the dirt off our cars. Uh, we bought a van in 2010 that basically didn't fit in the garage. Um, and at that point we committed to just not parking our cars in the garage. At, at which point I realized, uh, slowly over a couple of years, I could actually use the garage and thus began our soft conversion of the garage. Uh, which is, you know, I hung the curtains and moved stuff out of half of it and put, we moved the door. So it opens to the inside of the house instead of the outside of the house. Uh, but yes, Phil, that's the, the, you've, you've figured it out. Um, we don't park our cars in our garage. Our garage has essentially become half storage and half my office and our cars live in the driveway and the elements and the birds and the leaves and the sun, it's all on the cars. But as John Syracuse, uh, likes to point out, uh, when he comes to California, he looks at the car, all the older cars we have here. And it's like, it's like he's in a museum, he says. Because all those cars would have just rusted out to nothing. And even driving around in Boston, let alone sitting out on the street. But yeah, no, our cars sit outside. That's it. Like Cuba or something then, right? Isn't that the thing? They have all the really old cars in Cuba because... They, they do. They do. Because they don't. They didn't get imports for a while from anywhere except like Trabis from East Germany or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you would like to send in a question for us to open a future episode of Upgrade, just go to UpgradeFeedback.com and send in your Snell Talk question, or use question mark Snell Talk in the Relay FM members Discord. We're going to talk about Twitter later on today, because it feels almost pointless to even mention <laughs> that you can Indeed. send them in via Twitter anymore, because who's there? But that's a conversation for later on. We have some follow-up, Jason okay. Snell. First, Great. I would like to thank everybody you sent in follow-up via the feedback tool. I think we got more follow-up in the past week than we have gotten in a really long time. So I appreciate everybody's excitement about the feedback tool. There was a ton of stuff that uh, questions that we got sent in that we're going to use in this episode, later episodes. Lots of people just telling us that they love that we have the feedback tool. We're reading all of it. Even if we don't use some of it in some episodes, we do read all of it. So thank you to everybody that's been sending it in. And you can send in your feedback for the show by going to upgradefeedback.com. We had a bunch of people write in with fixes for the seasonal home kit items thing uh, that we mentioned yes. last time. So nice. like if you what do you do if you unplug your Christmas lights and then it just shows that you're have an item as unresponsive in home kit? 
So if you go to the uh, accessory detail view inside of HomeKit and turn off the status options that are at the bottom, this will remove it from the home summaries and then you won't get those errors anymore. And then there's a second part of this that a bunch of people wrote in because I was thinking about this. If I turned it off from the summaries, I would lose it. I was like convinced that I would just, where are the lights, right? Because then they're not showing up in any of the summaries and I'd forget that I'd have to go into the specific room, quote unquote, in HomeKit to find it. So then a bunch of people said, create a seasonal or holiday room or section in the Home app and just move all that stuff there. So then you'll know where to find it later on. I just thought it was very clever and just like a good way to to handle this. I'm going to say Apple. This is an opportunity for you to do something better here <laughs> with this, mm. right? Because it makes perfect sense that there would be things that you'd only need at certain times of the year, not even just like holiday things, you know? Like as the seasons change, it's just like certain devices that you might not need, so you unplug them completely. And then, right. you know, it's all going wild. So I would like to see something to maybe designate of like, this device is not always plugged in. Like, don't worry about it, you know? I like it. I have created a deactivated room and my Christmas lights item is now Look at that. living in there. So thank you to the many upgradians who sent that in. We also got something from Curtis who says, no one's buying a $2,000 Apple headset that does not already own the latest AirPods Pro. This is a non-problem. So this was mm. in our complaint to the idea in Rumor Roundup of that AirPods Pro may be required to use the Apple headset because of like bandwidth and and stuff like that for some things. And I said, if I spend $3,000 on a headset, I want you to throw in the AirPods Pro that are required for free. So I disagree with Curtis that it's a non-problem. I think it's a problem for Apple if this is a product that can only be sold to a subset of a subset of Apple customers. (laughs) You also need to have this other thing. I think it uh, the idea that if, if this is a product that's only sold to people who have the latest AirPods Pro, I would also say that's a problem because, again, subset of a subset, uh, not great. Also lets all media coverage of the product include a free shot at the product by saying, not only do you have to buy this thing, but you have to buy this other thing from Apple too. And, oh, Apple gets rich on that because you got to buy their expensive headphones in order to even use it, in order for it to even be usable, even if that's not true and it's got built-in speakers, uh, they will take the shot. I think it's just an own goal. You don't want to do it. And uh, more than that, uh, being seen selling a product for and then being seen as also including a whole bunch of extra purchases on top of it that you have to add in order to have the best experience when it's already very, very expensive. I mean, I guess if you're selling a luxury car, that's how you do it. But that's my point. Is this a luxury car? Because developers aren't going to build for a platform that is a super narrow luxury tech object. Uh, they, They need some belief that a lot of uh, units are going to be sold so that they can sell a lot of software to the people who bought it. So I appreciate the feedback, but I, I just don't agree. Yeah. And I think that it is a, I don't know if I necessarily agree that like, just because you would buy that product that you would own every single product. Like what if you just didn't want the AirPods pro, right? Like there just wasn't a thing that you wanted. Right. Uh, and I, Non-problem. I, yeah. Well, I, I just think that <laughs> I agree with everything you said, right. Of like, you open yourself up to just more criticism over the already expensive product for the sake of $60, 70 80 $90, $100, whatever it ends up costing, right, for the AirPods Pro to be produced. Just put them in. And I know that that is like 
not an Apple thing to do, right? To bond, like give you something for free or bundle it in the box. Like I was thinking about uh, iPhone chargers, right? Well, like, mm-hmm. you know, I have a good uh, random piece of follow-up. So I bought my mom an iPhone for Christmas. I yep. think I mentioned this. I got her an iPhone 13, right? She had an iPhone 10R. I got a right. call from her a couple of days after get, getting it. And she's like, there's something wrong with the battery on this phone. And so I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, the battery's running down. And I'm, I'm running out of battery at the end of the day. So I was like, all right, well, sometimes it takes a few days for some processing to occur. Just keep your eye on it and let me know. She's like, okay. And I was like, just take your charger to work with you. Do you have a charger at work? She's like, no, I just have a charger at home. I was like, okay, take your charger to work with you. She's like, okay. So, you know, a couple of days go by and she's like, I'm still having problems. I'm like, what's going on here? And then I realized she had an iPhone XR. She had like a 5-watt iPhone power adapter. Yeah. So I had to then buy her a power adapter. Right. Because she also had a USB-C cable in the box now anyway, right? So it's not like even the cable does nothing. And so it was kind of just my point of like, going all the way back to when they took the power adapter out of the box like it doesn't work like that like the whole idea of like everyone has these things it doesn't work like that because you over many years the amount of power required for these things changes and just this, the secondary part of like if this was purely an, an environmental thing just give people the option to have one added in for free then every now and again right. you know the people that update every their phone every 5 years they need a new power adapter but you know they're now having to buy that on top of what they would have otherwise i'll also say that um this is a, the argument that they don't they don't need to do this is missing the point i think of the fact that it's a design failure right if Apple releases a regardless of the price, but especially if it's two or three thousand dollars, if Apple releases a headset that can't properly do audio in a way that really is immersive or can be used for communication or whatever without an additional purchase, doesn't that suggest that they failed at something in the product? If they're like, yeah, we couldn't do that. And again, I can see the argument that's like, well, actually, what we did is we decided everybody's ears are different and everybody's audio preferences are different. And so we wanted to make that a separate feature. I'm like, okay, but like, if you're charging $3,000 for it, it's very hard for you to say, well, what we did was we cut the price from 3200 down to 3000 So now it's a deal and you can go buy a set of headphones. It just, it seems like a miss uh, just to even be talking about the fact that everybody's going to go, like, the, like the Quest 2 has a headphone jack, right? So you can listen using the Quest 2 audio. If you want headphones, you can you can plug into the headphone jack and put whatever headphones you want in there, theoretically, right? Uh, with this, though, it's like, well, no headphone jack. It's Apple. They need to be wireless. And then the specific report is that they need to be a very specific, newest version of the AirPod Pro, uh, AirPods Pro 2. So suggesting Apple's very latest and greatest tech is going to be required to do something that then, again, according to German's report, is a key feature of the product, which is communication stuff. It's like, that's that's where it all kind of like piles up. I could see it being sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. If you want a nicer experience, you get you get some headphones. But that's not what it is. It's like if you want part of the key experience, you must get the newest chip that's in only a couple of Apple products. That's where it starts to become a little bit ridiculous when you're talking about a product that is not we're trying to keep the price down. And that's why it's only like I don't feel this way if after all of this um, it's cheaper than we think, which is, by the way, uh, feedback that I've gotten from several uh, listeners 
uh, by various channels, which is a lot of people have talked about the iPad introduction and it being, you know, everybody mm-hmm. thought it would be the iPad be over a thousand and it was $500. And th- wondering if Apple is actually sandbagging a little bit here. I'm not sure if that's true or if people are looking at the uh, the bill of goods and calculating a markup in their head. But I have heard from people who say, yes, but that way they'll dazzle us. Uh, how could people be possibly impressed with a headset that costs $1,500 or $1,800? It's so expensive. And the answer is prime the pump by telling everybody it's three grand. And then when it's $1,500, you are like, oh, what a relief. Instead of what? $1,500? Uh, but you know, the cheaper it is, the more you can make the argument, look, if you want the best experience, pay a little more for accessories. But the more expensive it is, the harder I think it is to make that argument. Again, unless you're a luxury car maker and taking that approach, the problem is if you're trying to popularize this platform and get developers to develop for it, coming out with the ultra high-end product is probably not the best way to do it. I think I mentioned the iPad thing on the episode too. It was like a hope of mine that they would do this. but You may, uh, in fact, you did in episode 440. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it. An mm-hmm. almost original iPad-like price surprise. And I know that because I now have a secret tool that <laughs> lets me search old episodes of Upgrade. <laughs> we'll talk about that one day. Mm, one day. A roundup for you. Saddle up, Jason Snell. All right. I'm, I'm in the saddle. According yep. to Ming-Chi Kuo, Apple has canceled their plans for a full-screen iPhone SE 4 in 2024. Quote, I think this is due to the consistently lower than expected shipments of mid to low end iPhones. This SE4 was expected to be like a full screen experience. Um, and maybe Apple's just not completely sure of what's going on with this like tier of phones that they make. So they yeah. seem to have at least uh, put on hold or completely canceled the SE4. But this has an interesting ramification, according to Ming Chi Kuo. Due to concerns that the performance, uh, oh, sorry, over Apple's own modems, their 5G modems, quote, due to the concerns that the performance of the in-house baseband chip may not be up to par with Qualcomm's, Apple initially planned to launch its baseband chip in 2024 and let the low-end iPhone SE 4 adopt it first and decide whether to then use it in the iPhone 16 to use its baseband chip depending on the development status of the iPhone SE 4. A cancellation of the iPhone SE 4 has significantly increased the chances of Qualcomm remaining the exclusive supplier of baseband chips for the 2024 iPhone 16 series. Yeah, well, so, again, you don't want to make a mistake and ruin your iPhone, right? And we remember that time when Intel modems and Qualcomm modems were shared across an iPhone release, and it turned out that the the Intel modems weren't as good as the Qualcomm modems. And I think Apple even did some speed gating of the Qualcomm modems so that they would all seem the same. But it was one of those, it was a it was a bad thing. And the iPhone's too important to let that happen. So they have the smart idea, right? Of saying, let's test this in our in our iPhone SE, right? It's a low volume product. It's a low end product. We can put our chip in there. And even if it's a, even if it's slower than Qualcomm, what do you want? It's it's a it's a cheaper phone. And mm-hmm. if it goes well, we can look at the results and then we can release that chip elsewhere or not. And now the the test bed is killed because I think, like you said, and we talked about this previously, Apple seems to be struggling with the identity of portions of the iPhone line, right? Like the iPhone mini and then the iPhone plus, and neither of those seems to have worked according to reports that well. Yep. And the iPhone SE now being another concept that's sort of like, mm, 
you know, maybe not. So they're they're struggling with that. But the the yes, the spinoff is really interesting, which is that was also going to be their test bed. And if they can't test it with that, then the, the better safe than sorry to just kind of commit to Qualcomm for 2024. But Mark Gurman is reporting that Apple continues to work on their modem chips with the hopes of a 2024 release. So who knows what's going on there? Maybe they're still like still hoping that they can get them to work well. But if they do, they're going to have to take the plunge on it. Maybe they sacrifice another phone in the lineup. Who knows? Uh, an interesting tidbit on this is it's not just the modem. Apple is looking to combine the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth chips together too and make them themselves to drop parts from another supplier. Well, at least to design them themselves. And that that seems to be closer to fruition that Apple... Apple's already done some Wi-Fi and Bluetooth in some of their products, but to take it to the iPhone, for example, and take those over, it's all part of their plan. But Broadcom definitely took a hit in their stock when the report came out that Apple was working hard and felt like they were getting closer to being able to build their own chip to do Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and not have to buy that chip from Broadcom. Mark Gurman and Ross Young are both reporting that Apple is looking to develop its own micro-LED displays for the iPhone and iPad, but starting with the Apple Watch Ultra first. There's some debate on the timing of this. It's either going to be 2024 or 2025 for the first models to appear in an Apple Watch Ultra, but it's expected that the production will begin in 2024 at least, no matter when the devices are released. Uh, you may think to yourself, what's the benefit of this? Well, Mark Gurman says, the display is intended to offer improved brightness, color reproduction, and viewing angles, making images look more like they are painted atop the display glass and replace parts currently supplied by companies like Samsung and LG. However, it's worth noting that someone actually has to make the displays. This is just Apple designing them and designing new technology. Ross Young suggests that it would still be LG Display that does this, but Apple would be moving away from using their technology and designs, uh, not their manufacturing capabilities. Right. So it's actually a little bit more like with Apple Silicon, where mm -hmm. Apple takes over design of the thing, but there's still somebody else who makes it, right? Taiwan Semiconductor, T yep. TSMC, does that. Um, this is going to be like that potentially. And also this is one of, remember, it's like Apple's smallest display, right? And then this rumor has been out there for some time. I think it's very easy to jump to the conclusions like, whoa, uh, uh, Apple going to make all their display technology going forward. And it's like, this is going to take years, if ever, for this to happen. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's interesting that Apple decided that this was tech that they could push forward themselves and gain some sort of an edge and so they have done it whether it's you know whether it goes beyond this who knows but it's a it's interesting right you can see in all these areas apple trying to push a little bit on you know taking control of the key aspects of its own hardware and this was similar to the original apple watch had oled right and it was oled so so much uh, sooner than any other devices that apple made got oled so it makes sense here too. Right, OLED Apple Watch and then eventually OLED iPhone and still not OLED iPad, right? Or or Mac display. So the you can see the slow roll of of display tech and how it might become economical in something like an Apple Watch display years before it might even remotely become economical in something like an iPhone. If it ever does, right? Because there's competing display tech mm -hmm. and it might turn out that, you know, like a lot of us thought that maybe OLED would come to the iPad faster uh, and it hasn't. And, and some, you know, there's different display techs with different um, price and performance 
characteristics, basically. And something that makes sense on a screen this size for a product this price might not make sense ever on a larger device compared to some other tech that has different characteristics when you weigh them and say, actually, we're better off with this other thing. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. But um, I like that this seems to be moving forward. This was a rumor that was out there like years ago that Apple was trying to push the, the micro LED stuff forward. And 9to5Mac is reporting that Apple could have Mac news this week. Quote, Apple could be making its first announcement of 2023 as soon as tomorrow, sources say. The company is holding Mac-related briefings with influencers and select members of the press this week, and an announcement could be made via Apple's newsroom website on Tuesday, which is tomorrow as we record this. Uh, Certainly, you know, we're talking about a lot of stuff that Apple could have done and didn't do, uh, like... I don't know, different uh, updates to maybe iMacs, MacBook Pros, Mac Minis, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that MacBook Pro, Mac Mini thing that everybody seemed to say was primed for Mm -hmm. the fall and never happened. And they did that statement where they're like, and that wraps up the year for us. Like, oh, wait a second. Wait, we, okay, I guess, I guess that wraps up the year and it did. Um, You know, that suggests that that announcement's just kind of floating out there. And I know Mark Gurman at one point said, oh, they don't they don't introduce products in January, so it'll probably be March. And um, I remember at the time thinking, well, I mean, no, they've introduced products in January. And and if this report is correct, it would suggest potentially that um, that thing that they couldn't ship in November, they can ship in January. So maybe we'll have something to talk about next week about uh, new stuff. That would be great. It would be nice. Well, hoping that they're exciting. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, right. I, I mean, yeah. The ru- the rumor of, uh, you know, MacBook Pros are always exciting for a certain mm-hmm. category, even if it's just a speed update. And uh, waiting for the other to shoot a drop on the Mac Mini. That could be that could be good. Um, but who knows? I mean, Apple Card. Uh, like, there's lots of things it could be that are not as exciting. We wouldn't expect, like... The bigger MacBook Air or any or Mac Pro or anything like that, right? Anything's possible. The based on the the rumor of like the the chain of events for all these products, the ones that are the clearest as sort of like they've been on the verge of being introduced are the are the Mac Mini and the MacBook Pro M2, um, which would mean we get a look at what the high end, uh, higher end M2 chips look like, which would be fun. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, German's not hot on the iMac as a whole, but the, the, the Mac Pro is floating out there. The 15-inch MacBook Air is floating out there. There are some other other options that could surprise us. It just, it feels like those two are, I mean, they, for a long time, everybody was pretty convinced who had inside knowledge that they were going to roll out in November or October, and it didn't happen. So that, like with that MacBook Air that M2 that we were waiting for forever, uh-huh. like it kept felt like it was about to come, and then eventually it would it would have to. Um, these feel like that, but yeah, they could surprise us. They're, absolutely, um, anything's possible. It's also possible that this is not right, or it's possible that it's something. Maybe Eddie Q's got another blog post. I don't know, but we'll find out. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. 
If your New Year's theme, your New Year's goals is to do something and manage your budget better and save money, you need to check out Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions that they have forgotten about. Like that streaming service you bought to watch that one show on that your friends were recommending, and then you completely forgot about it, or that free trial that you signed up for and never even used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily identify your subscriptions for you, so you can stop paying for the ones that you don't want. And canceling subscriptions is as easy as a click of a button. Just find subscriptions that you're looking for or that you don't want and press cancel and Rocket Money will then cancel it for you. How amazing is that? No more long hold times on the phone with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. Think of the time you could save as well as the money. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. How fantastic is that? I mean, recently when we moved, I had to go through and find a bunch of uh, subscriptions for things, like change addresses and change card numbers and stuff like that. That was a nightmare, let alone trying to find those sneaky ones that are hiding from you somewhere and still charging you every month, and you're not using them. So stop throwing your money away Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash upgrade. That's R-O-C-K-E-T-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash upgrade. Rocketmoney.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Rocket Money for their support of this show and Relay FM. According to Mark Gurman, Apple is looking at adding touch screens to the Mac. Quote, Apple engineers are actively engaged in the project. Apple has been long making comments about this being a bad fit for the Mac product, suggesting that the iPad is the way to go, right? And I have, Jason, see if you can help me, right? I have these two phrases in my mind that I'm sure I've heard at some point, but Google was failing me today. One was zombie arms. Uh, yeah, zombie the arms. The other was toaster fridge. Were either of these ever said and about the idea of Touchscreen Max? Uh, zombie Arms, yes. Toaster Fridge, no. Toaster Fridge was about an iPad, iMac, iPad Mac combination, like combining the two. Uh huh. Um, and you can get two A's, a, a touchscreen Mac sort of being like that, but that's not, I don't, I don't believe that that is what that was about. People okay. Can correct me if I'm wrong. Zombie Arms, that the idea is if, and again, oh, totally overstated by people. Ergonomically, if the primary way you interface with a discrete with a screen that is basically uh, perpendicular to your keyboard that you have to reach out for, so not in your lap, not in your hand, but where we put our computer monitors, if the primary way you interact with it is by holding your arms out, and you try to do that all day it won't work. And you'll get the zombie arms, right? You're stretching your arms out like you're looking for brains and you're reaching and it and it's not great ergonomically. However, I don't know of any computers like PCs or Chromebooks that have a touchscreen and don't have another pointing device too, right? Um, that are in that traditional configuration. I'll make mm -hmm. all those statements. And and having 
I know many years ago I talked about this. My daughter had a Chromebook with a touchscreen for a long time, and I would use it occasionally. And uh, because I've been trained with the iPhone and the iPad, I there would be a button, you know, like an alert would come up on the screen, and I'd just tap it with my finger. Or I'd scroll with my hand, and I wouldn't even think about it, of like reaching down to the keyboard and, and using the trackpad or whatever. I'd just scroll because it's such a natural gesture. That's not the same as saying I'm going to do a, a four-hour Photoshop job on my studio display, essentially, by stretching my hands out. And like it, ergonomically, that's a totally different situation. So... um you know, there, it's one of those things where, like, I think Apple was making a very specific point about primary touch interface. And uh, I think in some ways they were kind of cloaking the fact that they just didn't want to do it because nobody was really asking for a primary touch interface. They were asking for an additional interface type, which was touch. Because wouldn't it be nice if in addition to this beautiful trackpad and keyboard that you've given me, if an alert comes up on the screen and I absentmindedly tap on it because you've taught me with your iPads and your iPhones that I could tap on that OK button and it works, that it would work on my Mac too. And Apple says, no, we, we no, you don't do that. I'm like, all right. I mean, that that is, uh, I, I don't think I agree with that, but that was sort of what was going on there. In general, how do you feel about the idea of a touchscreen on your Mac laptop? For if, it's, if it's a traditional laptop, it feels incremental to me. Seems nice, right? Would you agree? It seems nice. Oh, like, I'd love it. Just for the convenience sometimes. I mean, have you touched your MacBook screen? Forgetting yeah. that it doesn't have touch? I do it all the time, and especially now that I have an iPad Pro in a Magic Keyboard, which we've had for almost coming up three years now, I think, which has a, a laptop-like configuration, but also has touch, right? It has a pointing device, but it also has touch. And so, yeah, that happens all the time now where I'm like, oh, I'll just scroll this. Oh, right. It's a Mac. I need to put my fingers down here and, and do two-finger scrolling on the trackpad instead. And is it better to keep my hands down there? Sure. Would I want my primary thing? Would would I want them to take my trackpad away uh, on my MacBook Air? Absolutely not, right? Like, no, I don't want that at all. But I would like it, but that seems kind of incremental, right? That's like, oh, that's nice. That's a nice little addition. But th it's not really groundbreaking. What would be groundbreaking is what it unlocks. Because once you have a touchscreen, a lot of shapes and features <laughs> of what we think of as MacBooks today are up for grabs, right? Apple, I think we would all pretty much agree, Apple has kind of perfected the laptop design, right? I think everybody mm -hmm. in the computer industry would probably agree that if you talk about the traditional laptop design, which is a top and a bottom and a hinge, and you open it up, and there's a screen, and there's a keyboard and a trackpad. Like, everybody, the PC industry already agreed because they knocked off the MacBook Air. Every laptop is like a MacBook Air now. Um not every, but you you know what I'm saying. Like everybody really realized that is kind of the platonic ideal of a laptop in 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 for the last decade. But the PC laptop world is full of like weird other kinds of devices that are still running Windows but do different stuff. And Apple's has not played in that other than via expressing it via the iPad, which 
is its own issue, right? Like, what what are these two products? Apple sort of said traditional laptop, Mac OS, and the Mac, and then uh, tablet touch interface primary that you can put in a case that has a keyboard and all that, iPad, and they're separate products. But what Apple has missed out on is the idea of, well, what if I want a device that is a, you know, PC, a desktop uh, device, a, a Mac OS device that can have the level of interface flexibility that the iPad has. The iPad starts as a naked touch tablet, and then you can add on keyboard or keyboard and trackpad or pencil or external keyboard and mouse or external display. Or, you know, you can you can stack all of the things on top of that bare iPad. But the Mac can't do anything. A MacBook Air can't do anything other than be a MacBook Air. It, 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 I mean, you can close it up and attach it to an external display. That's the other, it's, it's great active transformation is becoming uh, a block of metal that runs other computers or mm-hmm. other things, right? So that's what they're missing out on. And that, that's what gets me excited about talking about touchscreen Max is not the incrementally nice thing of like, yeah, I can scroll on the screen. But it's like, what could that free Apple up to do with the Mac interface and the Mac hardware design? What... Because we've only seen iterations of these kinds of alternate products from PC manufacturers. And I personally don't feel convinced that let's let the PC manufacturers do it. They'll solve it. You know, as a longtime Apple product user, I actually don't believe that's true. I don't believe it's like, well, you know, we gave Asus and Dell and Samsung and Microsoft a decade to innovate here. And they solved it. Maybe they solved it, right? But it's like, what would Apple do? What would Apple do if they could make a convertible where you could take a standard laptop and turn the screen around or fold it down or whatever and turn it into a tablet? What would that be like? That you could have a Mac that was also a touch tablet or had Apple Pencil support? What if you could tear the the keyboard off of a Mac and it and and still use it because its brains were all up in the screen. What would that be like? Like they've experimented with this stuff, but I wonder if Apple has something to add to the conversation. Are you excited about the possibility of a touchscreen MacBook? I've wanted one for years because I can't see any reason why you wouldn't do it. Like, and I don't need a full scale rewrite of macOS to make this happen. Right. Like, I just want the ability to scroll a web page and sometimes hit a button with my thumb. Like, yeah. this is a very easy right. thing to, to deal with. Like, it doesn't I don't have to change the world. <laughs> no. Like, and could, I really don't need them to do more than that. Like, I, I just don't feel the requirement for it. You know, like you were saying about, like, um, PC laptops and the weird and wonderful designs. Do you know what's not considered weird on a PC laptop? Touchscreen. Like, yeah. of all of the weird things that happen in the PC world, touchscreens are not one of them. In fact, standard. Like, it feels like these days, if a PC laptop doesn't have a touchscreen on it, that is a point to bring up. Like, yeah. I feel like just at this point, you know, yeah, look, go ahead and do something to macOS to make it more touch friendly. Like, sure, there are going to be some things that might be a bit tricky, but do you know what, Apple? Like, you really understand how to make touch friendly user interfaces and or the ability to try and guess what someone's doing. Like, we've all heard about that, right? Like, the, you know, it's not just where you're touching, it's what they're expecting that you're touching, and so much goes into that, like, especially with the keyboard and stuff. Like, right. you know, it's going to be tricky, it's going to be complicated, but just start with, like, all right, we have a touchscreen on this thing, so now people can pinch and zoom and scroll and 
just go for it. Now, here's the thing I wanted to, to bring up from uh, Mark's piece. Based on current internal deliberations, the company could launch its first touchscreen Mac in 2025 as part of a larger update to the MacBook Pro. Does this feel like the right Mac to start with, the MacBook Pro? Well, if they're adding a touchscreen and it adds cost, the MacBook Pro does kind of make sense. I do wonder, I have two thoughts about this. One is, Doing what you're describing, which is just saying, it's cool. There's a touchscreen now, whatever. And like, it doesn't change the world. It's just like, we've got the, you know, we we got all these touch APIs that are come over and Catalyst and all of that. And like iPad apps will recognize it automatically. And it, it's cool, but it, it's a MacBook Pro still. It's not any different, right? It, the MacBook Pro is a good choice for that because a touchscreen is going to add some cost and mm-hmm. the MacBook Pro can bear it. And they can make some arguments that like, you know, this is the, this is, you pay more and you get more, you get this feature. And then eventually it'll come to all of its other laptops, but not on, on square one. And then the, the wild idea here is what if this is more than a MacBook Pro or, or not a MacBook Pro? What if it really is sort of like a new laptop, um, that has support for some of this stuff like touch and maybe even Apple pencil again. And it's a, you know, MacBook studio or something. It's like the mod book come, comes back, but like <laughs> something like that. Cause we we're you know, we're on the, we're obviously uh, you and I big fans of the studio yep. concept and what other studio products could there be? Um, I could see that that might not be the 2025 MacBook pro, right? Like the question is, is Apple's, idea here well when we do touch on a mac it's going to be radical when we do touch on the mac it's going to change everything because it's going to free us up to make this mac we've wanted to make for years and now we're going to make it or do they do the thing where they're like it's cool no big deal right like it's just yeah we have the touch whatever we don't care and then maybe they're freed up to do more down the road but they start with just sort of like it's just a macbook pro with a touch screen so you can scroll stuff don't get too excited about it uh, and I honestly, it could be either, right? It depends. I think ultimately it depends on how Apple's hardware designers feel about the opportunities that touch, touch screens bring to their product line and to Mac OS specifically. And do they think, well, no, because that's just the iPad. Then uh, something like the MacBook Pro where it's sort of like, no, 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 it's cool. It's just, it's just a basic tr- touch screen. You're not meant to use it as the primary interface device. Makes more sense. If they are like, we've been dying to make a convertible and can't because of the touch thing, then then they might get more radical. You mentioned in your uh, link post on Six Colors that you think it would require some design changes to macOS to make it more appropriate. Do you have any thoughts on kind of the areas that you would like to see them tweak to make this a reality? Some stuff needs to be bigger, although honestly, they've already been doing that work, right? Remember, we've been speculating about touchscreens for a while now because they've been doing that work. They've made a lot mm-hmm. of targets larger. The menu bar is taller. The, each menu item is a little bit taller. Because that was a whole thing with Ventura, right? Where like everyone was saying, oh, hang on a minute. And then Craig mm-hmm. Federighi was doing interview after interview saying, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. And I also mentioned in that post, like I have <laughs> actually, uh, I use the Screens app to connect to my uh to connect to my Mac mini server. And for whatever reason, the uh, sort of use the screen as a trackpad to drive the cursor around the screen stopped working. And so for the last month or so, I've been using the tap to select interface instead, where I actually, instead of moving, you know, sliding my finger on my iPad screen to move the cursor on the Mac and then tap, 
um, I have to actually like literally put my finger on the thing I want to tap on and tap it on the iPad and it goes straight through to the Mac. Uh, very different experience. And what I'd say is it works fine. It's not mm-hmm. great. Everything could be a little bit bigger, but other than that, and they could make it, they could make everything a little bit, they could scale the screen and make all items on the screen interface elements bigger if they wanted to, but like it's usable. And certainly for stuff like scrolling or tapping on an okay button or like it's completely usable. So I don't think it's, I think that there's work that they would want to do, but they've already done some of the work and we're talking about a release in 2025. So they've got some time to do the work if they have decided to go down this road. Um, I don't think it's a, this is one of those things that people say, it's like, oh no, they'll never do it because they have to totally change the Mac interface. It's like, yeah, they already changed it some. Also, it's kind of usable as it is. And again, it's not the primary use case. It's not meant to be. Now, if they're going to make a convertible that's going to look like Mac OS when you put it into tablet mode, yeah, they're going to have to make some changes. But who knows, right? Like, does a convertible Mac in tablet mode look like a Mac at all? Or does it go into like an iPad-like mode where it's still Mac OS, but it, 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 the interface changes when there's no longer a pointing device available and you're just using a touchscreen? That would be more work for them, although they could crib from the iPad. But it wouldn't require a redesign of standard Mac OS. It would be like an alternate mode. Yeah, and I think safe to say we are both not expecting by any stretch that this is a combo iPad OS, Mac OS product. Only, well, no, although I think that it's, if, if Apple decides to go with something that has a pure touchscreen mode in a conversion, I think there's a question of, do, is iPad OS essentially embedded inside Mac OS at that point, right? That that it's a Mac that can also run basically in an iPad mode that is still a Mac, which is weird, but like they could do that if they wanted to, if they thought that was the best approach. I want to I wanna take a step back though, because when we talk about the toaster fridge, this is the collision of the iPad and the Mac, which have come together in a lot of ways over the last few years, but are also still separate. And look, I don't have the answers here and I appreciate how hard it must be for people inside Apple to make these decisions about, and we see it with that iPhone story, right? Like sometimes they make the calls and they think, I think this is how it's gonna work out with these lower end iPhone models. And then they look at the sales data, the real answer, and they're like, oh, we got it wrong, right? Like it happens, these are hard decisions to make. But that said, there's a little part of me that that says to myself, okay, I love the iPad. And now I don't have an iPad laptop, which I wrote several columns about a few years ago, but the Magic Keyboard makes the iPad when it wants to be pretty much a laptop. Mm-hmm. However, my Mac can't be more like an iPad. It, Apple hasn't allowed it to be more like an iPad. It's sure it's thinner and it's got the curved edges and it's got that nice screen. But But in the end... There are places that the Mac platform is not allowed to go. Allowed by who? Allowed by Apple's own decision to stake out ground for certain product shapes for iPadOS. And I guess my question is, one, how's that going? Right? How's iPadOS pushing into those areas going? Because what I'm not talking about is like base model iPad. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about the iPad Air. I'm talking about the iPad Pro with all these accessories and with Stage Manager and all of that. And I could make the argument, and I I don't want to, because I like my iPad Pro. 
But I could make the argument that Apple would be better off making a convertible Mac that can go into an iPad mode than making an iPad Pro. Because the iPad obviously is struggling to become more Mac-like. And maybe the Mac would struggle to become more iPad-like. I mean, sure, it probably would. But sometimes that boundary between the Mac and the iPad feels artificial. And it feels like neither product can become, can reach its full potential as long as there's this wall between them that a Mac can't look more like an iPad. And iPadOS struggles to be more like a Mac. So are you envisioning a world where they do merge the product line? I mean, no, because I think Apple is very conservative about this stuff, honestly. But if I were at Apple, I would have that conversation, which is, are we happy with how the iPad is going mm-hmm. at the high end? Are mm-hmm. we happy with all the effort we've put into making the iPad Pro more like a Mac? And are we happy with Mac OS being limited to sort of traditional laptop shape and not going further down the path of touch? And if we look out in this product line, especially, I mean, especially since you're, you've got generations of people raised in touch interfaces now. And so to have a computer that doesn't have a touch interface at all, is kind of weird, but the iPad at the high end, like this is that struggle. And I think if I were at Apple, I would at least have to ask, would we be better off considering iPad OS a basis for a touch mode on Mac OS so that the people who say that they're iPad OS power users can get what they want on a computer that is built to have more power as opposed to a a device that's been scaled up to provide more power but without the software being able to be there like the macOS software has all this stuff the iPad still struggles to catch up and and what if we what if we had said a long time ago instead of doing a higher end iPad an iPad Pro what if we make an effort to start making Macs that can be converted into tablet-esque things that can run an iPad mode, essentially, or something kind of like it. I know there's a lot of complexity here. I know there's like, but what about, what apps would it run? And what, what would the interface look like? And like, I, I get it. I totally get it. This is hard stuff. But I'm combining, I'm just, I'm just putting out there my two separate thoughts. One of which is, it feels to me like Mac laptop design is stalled, in part because Apple doesn't want to experiment at all with touchscreens or do anything that's sort of like happening over in the iPad space. And secondly, that the iPad Pro especially has really struggled on the software side because when you try to make the iPad do more, you end up uh, having these uh, solutions that sometimes are great, like the pointer support, I think is legitimately great. But that on the software side, especially, you know, in terms of third-party apps and in terms of things like file management, that even when Apple tries, they they do kind of struggle. And I'm not sure there's an enormous audience for pushing what we think of as pushing the iPad to the highest esoteric high end, whereas on in a Mac context, we would think of it as like using a computer, right? Like on the iPad, it's like you're a you're a, a, a complete. Um, 
maniac to use an iPad like this. But the like this is literally like using a Mac. It's right. And yet there's a disconnect there. So I don't know. I, I That's a lot of thoughts engendered by one report about touchscreen Macs. But it, it does make me think of the fact that it is, we are talking about an iPad feature being inherited by the Mac. And what does that mean? But in my heart of hearts, my guess is because Apple is so careful and Apple is so conservative about this stuff that it's not going to mean any of that. And that the iPad Pro is still going to be kind of a product that is kind of Mac-like, but never really verges too far in that direction. And the Mac becomes a little more iPad-like in some ways, especially using like Catalyst and in the long run Swift UI apps that are built with some touch sensibility on top of them. Um, and that maybe Apple down the road experiments with some different shapes, but for now, I think is going to be mostly happy that Mac OS laptops look like laptops. That That's... I am excited about the potential for change here uh, because, you know, it's been whatever 13 years since the MacBook Air um, sort of defined what the laptop shape was and what's next. But I do feel like part of today's Apple is this restraint of uh, saying, look, it works, so we're not going to mess with it. Mm. And if that's the case, then throw, throw a touchscreen on there, satisfy some people, and um and then walk away and don't push it beyond that because i guess at that point in this in this scenario we're looking at here of the mac gaining some kind of ipad like mode really what you're left with is if the because the ipad would continue to exist in this scenario is what are you looking for hardware wise right like what mm-hmm. is you know that's what the 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 customer is asked and actually like i was thinking about this as you were talking i'm not sure most people are buying an ipad for ipad os like like oh man i want ipad os like right and that's not saying that as a bad thing to ipad os i just mean that i think people are buying they want an apple product for its apps, services, whatever. And then it's like, well, which one do I want? And like, I don't buy an iPad for iPadOS. I buy an iPad for what the iPad does. And it's good at what it's doing because of its form factor, right? Like, I want something to read my news on a slightly larger screen. iPad mini is perfect. I want something to watch some video. You know, the iPad Air is perfect for that, right? Because then I've got this big keyboard in the way or whatever, and so in that scenario of like, well, the iPad Pro can still exist for people that want all of that form factor, but for people that really like iPadOS, they could use it on their Mac too. Yeah, I just, I keep coming back to thinking, why do I have an iPad Pro with a Magic Keyboard? And the answer is I do like iPadOS, but what I really like is that I like that I have one device that I can use in a tablet mode and I can also use in a keyboard laptop-esque mode. And there's nothing stopping Apple from saying, well, why not a Mac laptop that can become a tablet instead of a tablet that can become a laptop? And that's a good question, right? Like I have a MacBook Air and an iPad Pro. Now, aside from the fact that that means Apple has sold me two pieces of hardware instead of one, which is a consideration, although I would I, I think that I'm probably a little more of an outlier. But if I if Apple made something that was a MacBook Air or MacBook Pro-like device, that could also be uh, an iPad Pro-like device. And I could just 
turn them and whether that's disconnecting the keyboard or whether that's flipping around the screen or whatever something some version of what you see in all these windows laptops or convertibles that are out there uh-huh would that be my primary computing device i think it probably would be i think it probably would be i think that would be enough for me to say, well, now I have everything in one place and it's a laptop when I want it to be and not when I don't. Also, there's a certain level of artificiality of the fact that iPad Pro can be put in that case and look like a, a laptop, but it can't actually run Mac OS in that scenario. Only, I mean, I know why. And yet on another level, it's like, but it's a laptop. Why not? And the answer is, well, no, it, it looks like a laptop, but it still has to behave in uh, accordance with its base mode of being a touchscreen. Um, and so it, all these things that I can do on a Mac, I can't do on my iPad. Like I was doing a thing this weekend where I had to collaborate with a bunch of people in Discord while also using Google Sheets, and I tried and I tried to use an iPad for it. And about like five minutes in, I just went and I got my MacBook Air because the, the, as much as I love my iPad Pro, can't it, it? It's a bit terrible for that. Same screen size, <laughs> but but it just it can't. It just is bad at it. It's just really bad at it. And, and that's just the lot of an iPad user is sometimes you hit that wall and it's like the shape of this thing suggests that it could do everything my laptop could do, but it can't. And I I think, and this is why I say these are big picture things. And this is hard decisions for people at Apple to make is people at Apple have to decide what does the laptop look like in five years or 10 years? And what does our laptop look like there? And where's the iPad going? And is the iPad high-end stuff successful enough for us to continue investing lots of money and time in paying people to develop new software for iPad OS that makes it creep toward but never really reach Mac OS? Or is there another path? And maybe the answer is no, right? I mean... Uh, Absolutely, the answer could be no. It doesn't really make sense when you pencil it all out. I'm just saying it's a hard question. And when Apple does something like potentially uh, commit to doing touchscreens on on macOS, you have to ask the question: like, where did did you redraw the line? <laughs> is this where the line is now, or is there no line, and we need to decide where to draw the line? Because they could have easily drawn the line at no laptop like thingy on iPad OS, and they didn't do that. They, mm-hmm. they made the magic keyboard and they introduced, you know, a pointer support. So yep. they didn't draw the line there. So where is that line? I don't know. It's just that that's that's what's all swimming in my head. And I think it's fascinating. And I think it's a hard decision for people at Apple to make. And I hope they had those conversations. Right. I hope it isn't a culture where they're just like, no, no, no. No, no, no. We'll, we'll put a touchscreen on the on the laptop. That's fine. But otherwise, our laptops in twenty thirty are going to look exactly like they did in 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 twenty twenty. You know, they'll be thinner and lighter and more powerful. But otherwise, it's still going to be those two planes that you open up, and that's it. Like that would be a shame if they didn't if they weren't open to the possibilities of of this. Um, and I honestly don't know if that's the case. But that's that's like high pay grade level stuff at Apple. That is that is product vision stuff. And um, I'm not. I'm not going to be out here as a pundit saying I could do that job or I've got an easy answer. I probably could not do that job. It's certainly not an easy answer, but it's interesting to consider the paths that mm-hmm. Apple has and um, and maybe maybe where they're choosing to walk. And also based on German's report, really, you get the impression that this is a potentially a change, right? That somebody said, I've reconsidered where we need to take this. And that's led to this decision. And that's interesting, right? Because that's Apple questioning its path 
uh, forward for that product. And um, I wonder where that will lead us. This episode is brought to you by Ladder. Let's be real. We'll have a tendency to put some things off until the very last minute. I am 100% speaking from experience. Whether it's going to the DMV, arranging my next dental checkup, don't at me, all right, I'm going to go eventually, or getting to that next home improvement project, you know these kinds of things I'm talking about. We all have this laundry list of someday items that we want to get to. And while most of the time it will work out, the one thing in life you can't afford to wait on is setting up term coverage life insurance. You've probably seen life insurance commercials on TV and thought, I'll look into that later. Because maybe it's just not something you want to think about. But this isn't something you should wait on. Choose life insurance through Ladder today. Ladder is 100% digital. This is awesome. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, you just answer a few questions about your health in an application. That's it. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. And they made Forbes' best life insurance list in 2021. You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. There are no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time, and you'll get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long, proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by A and Best, and since life insurance costs more as you age, there is never been a better time to cross it off your list than literally right now. So go to ladderlife.com slash upgrade today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash upgrade. One last time, go now to ladderlife.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Ladder for their support of this show and Relay FM. On Thursday evening, Twitter cut API access to a variety of the most popular third-party apps rendering them unusable. Literally can't log in, log you out, can't log in, can't do nothing. Yep. Uh, this seemed to be a targeted thing. Uh, it seemed to be that the most popular apps, typically iOS apps, uh, Tweetbot, Twitterific, for example, um, there were some smaller apps that stack around. Twitterific on the Mac had a different API key, so it was still available because it had fewer users, that kind of thing. Um, there had been no communication from Twitter about this to anybody, including the developers. There's been no response from any questions uh, to Twitter from reporters, developers, or whatever. Uh, this isn't just iOS, Android. You know, all, Basically, it seems like all of the most popular third-party apps, the ones that maybe showed up somewhere. Uh, this was bubbling a lot over the weekend, lots of people talking about it, obviously. The information had a report suggesting that this was an intentional decision based on conversations in the Twitter Slack that they were shown. Mm -hmm. um, seemed pretty clear from that. Yeah, and I heard from somebody who, again, it's a somebody who knows somebody at Twitter, so it's yep. secondhand. But somebody who, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I believe this person who said, uh, who sent me a note that said, yeah, I heard from a person I know in Twitter, and this is totally intentional. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, and I think it was, I mean, it was obvious, but was proven by the fact that the developers of Tweetbot, Tapbots, switched their API key on the back end to test if this was a targeted thing. So they switched their key to a new key. It was very limited, but users could sign in. It got cut off again. <laughs> so, so ends another part of Twitter for a large portion uh, of yeah. our listenership, at least. 
mm-hmm. because I have no doubt that there are many people that use third-party apps that would not use the official app, which is why they were using third-party apps in the first place. Uh, and I have no doubt that this whole situation would not kind of engender people to wanting to make that switch, right? Like that if Twitter pulled the rug from under you as a user, let alone as a developer, but from you as a user, you might be more angry about doing what they want you to do, right? So I expect that there are even more people now moving over to services like Mastodon uh, than there ever was previous, at least in our kind of corner of the internet. Yeah, or dumping out of it entirely. I'm sure, you know, in, in our audience, there's definitely portions of twitter's user base that don't seem to be going anywhere my sports list is still you know going strong uh i have now bookmarked it in my in safari (laughs) to -hmm. just literally go to that page and read that list because i can't view it in twitterific anymore on my ipad i can on my mac which is weird like they haven't killed the mac api uh token yet curious uh ben thompson wrote about this a little bit on stratechery today he had the exact same thought that i had about it which is it does feel like maybe they've given up on twitter blue as a revenue driver because you would think and this is i think this also shows you how twitter doesn't seem to actually have any plans or anything that they they can think through if anything takes five steps and and takes more than a few days to implement they are just not going to bother doing it because a logical thing to do with your super engaged and enthusiastic user base who loves your service so much that they use a third-party app in order to get all these whizzy features. But the third-party app has some issues that they don't display your ads and they don't display your algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. You could come up with a plan that allows API access, but only for people who pay for Twitter Blue or allows API access, but they have to include your ads in the feed and that the way that the ads get turned off is via Twitter blue or reduced is via Twitter blue and that they have to implement a, an algorithmic timeline. And would all these things make the users of those apps uh, complain because they would degrade the, the experience? Sure. But you could use those people as a, you know, you could, you could make those developers jump through hoops for you potentially and, uh, and do that. But Twitter has obviously decided it's just not worth it. Let's just, it's actually strange because it's a move that comes from a position of power, it seems, where it's like, well, we'll just kill those clients and then everybody will have to use our app or our website. It's like, yeah, but a lot of them, you'll lose, you know, I don't know about a lot. You will lose a bunch of them. You will lose some percentage of them because that is how they've interacted with your your service from day one. Like I, I have used Twitter to the extent that I have over the years because I have native apps and that's why I used it more than I used Facebook or Instagram. It's because I had native apps on my Mac, especially, but also on my iPad and iPhone. And the Twitter native app was never really any good. And it's still not very good. It's got its moments. I did use it for a little while off and on, but like they're proceeding from this, I guess they think a position of power, which is like, what are they going to do? They obviously have to keep using Twitter. So they'll just come to our app, which is, I think maybe an assumption they shouldn't make. But also the way it was handled shows just how classless this company is because they obviously don't, not only did they have the attitude of like, well, we'll break these apps and then those users will come running to us, but they didn't have the respect to the apps and the developers, but especially to the users of saying, we're going to do a shutdown. You have a week or 21 days or whatever, or a month 
to shut down the API and migrate people. And here's how you do it. And you can put a message in your app and don't renew anybody's uh, payments for your apps anymore because your apps aren't going to work after February 1st or whatever. And they could have done that. Uh, and that would have been the uh, the right thing to do. I was going to say the classy thing to do, but it's literally it's the right thing to do. Right thing yeah, to do for your users, yeah. right thing to do for these partners who have been uh, partners of Twitter for like often more than a decade. Uh, just make it clear. Instead, not only did they do the the wrong thing, the classless thing, but I would say they did the cowardly thing. And also yeah. it shows their own ineptitude because they just turned it off. They didn't tell anybody. They let everybody figure it out. And they only turned it off for certain apps and even for certain versions of certain apps. Because like I said, my Mac Twitterific still works for now, which is bizarre. So they did that badly. <laughs> they didn't communicate it. Uh, they, they still haven't, as we were recording, communicated anything about this. These things just broke. So you've got your users who use those apps and rely on them. Uh, it looks like the apps broke but it was actually you and you never explained yourself. And I, I'd say it's also fitting that this is a company that no longer has a communication and communications department or anybody who's supposed to communicate for the, for the company because uh, Elon Musk doesn't believe in communications departments. He just, he just fires them and shuts them down. So te Tesla doesn't have one. SpaceX doesn't have one. Right. So yeah. Is, is it a, is it the right business move for Twitter in the long run to not have third-party clients that don't show their experience and don't show their ads? From a purely business standpoint, it is the right thing to shut them down. You either have to build a program where you are using those apps to make you money as well, which would require a lot of effort, I think, mm -hmm. that they don't seem to be willing to have. So, okay. I, I, you know, it, it's never Ben Thompson's point and he's right. So it's sort of never made sense. They've sort of kept them around kind of out of some oh, they've been sense of the odd one out, right? Like Twitter's the only company yeah. like this to have an API that they're still using. Like this right. is what I think is the, the main thing that's going on here is there is no desire or even ability at the moment inside of Twitter to maintain the API and make significant enough changes to it that Twitter the company will benefit from these users. Like well, yeah, that and that, that's what I'm saying is like is that uh you could do it, but it would be a real effort. Mm -hmm. And why? Nobody Facebook doesn't let people build Facebook clones or and the people who try to do they tend to bring the hammer down on. This is a historic thing. It has to do with the founding of Twitter and and Twitter trying to become popular by using uh, leveraging their API, which absolutely happened. And apps like Twitterific that were there at the beginning, not only did they help define features of Twitter for Twitter, but also helped give Twitter stickiness by making pleasant apps for in which to use the service. That's mm -hmm. all true. But if you're at Twitter in 2023 or arguably 2017, there really are only the two paths, which is you either make a real effort to make Twitter different in the sense that it's got this open API with a bunch of, and you make the API terms make sense for you financially, or you turn it off. Those are your choices. But the problem is, again, you you announce a sunset, right? You announce yeah. that you're going to do it. So I don't have a problem with Twitter saying, look, why are we letting people view Twitter without ads? That's how we make all our money. Totally get it. 
Uh, the jig is up. I really enjoyed using Twitter for more than a decade without ever uh, seeing any ads. That was awesome for like 15 years. Great. I get that you don't want me to do that. Okay, fine. But the way they did it showed how clueless and classless they are. Truly. That they that this is the best they could do is and cowardly. Let's make it a, a threesome. Clueless, classless, and cowardly. They did it scattershot. They did it basically in the dead of night. <laughs> they didn't tell anybody that they did it. And they left their their users and their longtime partners in the lurch. And I, I just believe that uh, it would not have been hard to say we're going to turn this stuff off mm-hmm. uh, in a week or in a month. Mm-hmm. But they chose this other path. And it's their business. They can make their decision. But I think I think it says for all of the talk about pronouncements by Elon Musk and the way he has comported himself on Twitter and the wisdom, the wisdom of, of this guy buying this company in the first place and how he tried to get out of it. All of that aside, I look at this and I think this is a great indictment of how badly run the new Twitter is, is that they did it this way. And nobody's going to stop them. But I, I, I would say that showing this utter lack of respect for your um, for your users... <laughs> is going to bite you mm-hmm. in the end. Mm-hmm. And that being, and and, and I, I'm just going to just twist the knife a little bit. And you didn't even do it right. You missed, you missed some. You missed some. Why is Twitterific on the Mac still working? It's because you blew it. You can't even, you couldn't even settle all family business competently. <laughs> you, you, you blew that too. You did it scattershot because this is not even a betray, just a betrayal. It's a half-assed betrayal. So well done. That says it all about where Twitter is right now. And like everybody else uh, who I respect, uh, who has said this in the past, uh, that's pretty much it for me. I, I, I'm going to look at my little sports list using their web interface. But like, this isn't a company that's doing anything that uh, I'm interested in. And they've shown their, they've shown through their actions, they've shown just how badly run this company is. And I didn't think some company could be worse run than the old Twitter, but the new Twitter is managing to do it. It's, this seems pretty clear that like Elon Musk found out that there were third party apps on Wednesday. And said, shut them off. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what, what, that's what modern Twitter seems to be. Today's Twitter seems to be a, uh, completely dysfunctional company ruled by fiat by a child King. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I owned it, if it was my company, right? If I was in the situation where I ended up having billions of dollars and decided I wanted to buy it, I would shut down the API. I wouldn't do it the way he did it, but right. I would do it because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make business sense long term to do this. Like, because it's even like, all right, okay, you could charge people subscriptions, right? As we've seen in the past, every single feature that you may ever want to add to the platform, you then have to, to the consider API. the API. This and is why Apple tried. This was sorry. This why why Twitter no tried polls. to get rid of the API, right? <laughs> Group messaging. They tried to get rid of it already, and they couldn't do it. And then they decided, all right, let's try and make it work out. And then they tried to make it work out, and now it's gone, right? Like I. It, is a legacy weird thing that they never got away from. And I think like Ben Thompson mentioned again, I mentioned Ben a lot. Shutaker is great. You should read it. 
every single one of the previous CEOs should have gotten rid of it, but no one yes. could get their act together enough to do it, right? And look, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, right? Like if you are a person who loves Twitter and loves TweetBot, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get what you want, right? Like this is different, but like as a user and as the owner of the company, but like from a realistic standpoint, to run that network properly, right? It has to be advertising and the advertising has to be good and done well. And that yeah. means it needs to be in a controlled environment where you can get the statistics and blah, 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 blah. Like mm -hmm. to make Twitter as good as it can be, all of Twitter's users need to be on Twitter, which is why Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, none of you these name it. apps have third-party services. Whereas Jason mentioned earlier, some of them used to. Like you, There was an Instagram API. There was a Facebook API because at Web 2.0, that's what you did, right? right? But now you don't do that anymore because it makes everything more difficult. But as you say, the way that they did it was just ridiculous, bad, and just half-butted, I will say. <laughs> I already said half-assed. You can say that. I know, but I don't want to say it. All right. Because I don't have to say it the way I say it. Half it sounds weird, right? Like as an English person. Harfarst. Yeah, I just uh, it just doesn't roll, Hello, mate. roll right. Hello, um, mate. The, yeah. I mean, that's that's we, we're we going back and forth now. It, it, this is the bottom line is that I think it makes business sense for them to do it. I agree. They should have done it long ago. I'm not happy about that because I, like I said, I feel like I've gotten away with it for 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. Of using their service without seeing any ads. <laughs> it's great. It's great. The only money I've ever given to anybody was to Twitter client developers. It's great. It's bad for Twitter. Good for everybody else. Bad for Twitter. And you're right. If you're trying to rapidly... If you're trying to fix Twitter and rapidly develop things, the last thing you need to do, go, do is go into a hole where you're like, hey, we did polls. Well, we can't release polls yet because we need to do a polls API and then communicate that to the developers of our third-party clients and then give them time to in order to... It's like, no, no, no. I just want it so that I roll out polls and with the things I control, which is my app developers and my web developers. And then we're done, right? Like, I get it. I totally get it. Um, and there is a counter argument to be made, which is the other way to do it is open source... Uh, media like the Fediverse and like Mastodon and all of that, where there are open clients and it's a completely open environment. And that's fine. You got to find another business model there. And maybe the business model is people are paying for servers and clients and all of that. Maybe that's a different ecosystem. But if I'm the CEO of Twitter, that's not my business, right? That's not my business. Uh, Dick Costolo tried at one point to kill the clients and, and then Dick or Jack or somebody tried to then start a project where they were going to support sort of like a, a idea of a federated social media. But like the bottom line is that yes, yes. Uh, Twitterific created so much value for Twitter right down to the bluebird and the word tweet. All of that is true. And that the clients popularized the service. All of that is true. But if you're standing at Twitter in 2023, uh, you know, the right business decision is to say, well, that's all well and good, but I, I need to make money and the clients don't make any sense in, in any business sense. And I think it's true. So, kill them. But to do it like this, I mean, to do it like this shows that they're either incompetently managed or realize Malicious. that this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Or realize this is going to be a problem, like I said, cowardly. And so they just want to like not say anything and, and kind of whistle as they walk away from the crime scene instead of just sort of like standing up and taking it and saying what we've said here, which is it doesn't make a business sense. We appreciate all the contributions these people have made. Here's here's what our users who are using those apps should do in order to migrate to our our apps and website. Uh, you know, January 
30th, February 1st, whatever is the last day. Goodbye. Um, but they can't even, they can't even do that. So, so not necessarily the wrong business decision, but just done poorly and, uh, and, and in the wrong way. Craig Alcombari of, uh, developer to terrific, the icon factory just wrote a beautiful blog post and which I really encourage people go and read. It has an interesting ending to me where, you know, Craig is, is interested in what's going on now in the kind of uh, federated social media space and says he has some ideas. And, you know, I, I really hope this is like a Phoenix like moment. Like Twitterific was so like, it's hard to explain unless you were there at the time. Right. But it, built Twitter. It built it. Like, without it, it wouldn't be the same. And it's not even just the words and the contributions like that. It was just like, it made it a beautiful, wonderful, usable thing. And I'm really interested to see if lightning can strike twice here, you know? And, and I hope it does for them because they, they're a great bunch of people who, who deserve it. But obviously, you know, the, the 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 app of the moment is Ivory, right? From Tapbots. Everyone's excited about Ivory. Uh, if you can get on the beta, and I'm sure that there'll be a shipping version of Ivory faster now than there was going to be otherwise. Um, so th I guess they're the apps to, to look out for at the moment. It's what it seems for people that are using Mastodon, although it seems like something uh, from the Icon Factory is probably sometime yeah. away. I don't know. I mean, I they they all seem kind of burned out, but I will say that that Craig and Ged and um oh uh Sean from Icon Factory, Sean Heber who did most of the I think is the primary developer on Twitterific for quite a while now. They're all on Mastodon, right? And and they have and as Craig's post says, they have been and obviously the Tapbots people are also on Mastodon and, and Paul is over there talking about Ivory and a lot of us are trying to, not, it's great. It's a great app. So I wonder, but, and Craig's post is interesting in that he, what, what Craig's not doing, it seems to me is hinting that, yeah, we're going to make something of our Twitterific code base by doing Masterific, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think that's what he's saying, but I like no, I the idea either. that they are, they are getting in a conference call, the Icon Factory people and they are saying well we've got this we've got this code base is there something is there a product we can make with it since twitterific is going away and what do we want it to be and what craig is saying is let's not just do twitterific for mastodon but let's think about it more broadly and he mentioned uh federated social media uh and he mentioned microblog by name for example mm -hmm which is Manton Reese's Fediburst compatible microblogging environment that's it's it's cool. And that strikes me as being Icon Factory saying, yeah, we're looking at this stuff, but one, we're kind of burned out because they've been fighting these battles with Twitter for a long time. Forever. Yeah. And two, we want to do it right. <laughs> and we want to not rush in and he he's not uh casting shade on anyone i think paul haddad is is very smartly saying we're just gonna we're gonna do this ivory thing and we're gonna make it happen and we're gonna give people a place to go that's nice and it is nice and they had started to do it before this yeah right? i like, think yeah. i think icon factory is sort of saying after this difficult time we want to we're going to take the time to pause and consider what we would do 
And that I think that's a great approach too. That they're that when they come out with something, you know, Tapbots is going to get the first mover advantage here. I mean, it's, they're not the first movers, but they're they're the first very the big serious developer mm-hmm. uh, app developer company to take a very serious product and build a version of it essentially on Mastodon. I know there are lots of Mastodon apps out there. I think Twitterific may benefit or, or, or Icon Factory may benefit from taking the Twitterific source code and thinking about it a bit more and trying to do something different because honestly, that's how they were successful on Twitter back in the day was thinking those deep thoughts about what Twitter should be and how it should work. And um, a lot of the things that are in the Twitter product are because Icon Factory had to spend time thinking about the Twitterific product. And a lot of those decisions they made ended up influencing the Twitter product. So I'm interested in the idea that they're going to use their brains to sort of think, what does a federated decentralized social media posting and reading app look like? And great. I'd love, I'd love to see it because Twitterific was in my dock for of my iPhone and my iPad for more than a decade. And it's not there anymore. And that's sad. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Upgrade Plus. If you love Upgrade and want to hear more of it, you should check out Upgrade Plus. You'll get no ads and you'll get bonus content every single week. We're talking like a whole extra segment at the end of the show for you Mm -hmm. every single week if you go to getupgradeplus.com. You also get access to the Relay FM members Discord. Oh, hey, are you feeling like you're lost in your social media landscape? Let me tell you about a great place to be, which is the Relay FM members Discord. GetUpgradePlus.com. You can sign up for $5 a month or $50 a year. Not only do you get all this content, you get additional content for being a Relay FM member. You get access to members only shows like backstage where me and Stephen Hackett tell you what's going on behind the scenes at Relay FM. You'll get our annual specials and the whole history of all of those to go back and listen to a ton of wonderful bonus content from across all of Relay FM. You get wonderful little extras like the Relay FM members newsletter. You get access to members only wallpapers for your devices and so much more. All of this available to you at getupgradeplus.com and you'll be helping to support Jason and I and our work here at Upgrade. Indeed. We value uh, our members very highly. Thank you if you have ever signed up or if you will sign up in the future at getupgradeplus.com. Let's finish out today's episode with some Ask Upgrade. Patrick asks, <laughs> if you were Tim Cook and you could add either a touchscreen or a cell modem to the next generation MacBook Pro, which would you choose because you think it would sell more computers? Wow, what a question. Um, to sell more computers. Yes, wow. that's the specific part, right? I'll say for me, touchscreen all day. I think a touchscreen is easy to market, right? Like, how do you market? Oh, hey, do you want to use what most people call Wi-Fi, but is actually... Set, like it's too complicated, right? Like I feel like it's not a great ad. I think a great ad is, you know, someone's using their Mac and just reach out and touch it and scroll. Like I think there are enough people go, oh, I want that. Then like, oh, hey, I'm outside and I can sign up for another data plan. How awesome. <laughs> I agree with you. Although I think that both of them will probably sell uh, a similar number of computers. But yes, it's also a much, it's just a much clearer thing to market. And you can almost see the ad, right? That it's just like, Somebody, a finger reaches out and touches the screen and a thing happens and, you know, 
popular music plays and <laughs> you can see it. You know, you know what that's like. I got a free ad for you, Apple, right? Two people sitting next to each other. One of them reaches out to touch it. Someone goes, no, don't do it. And then they do it and it scrolls, right? Like, oh, mm. you know, like, yeah, that's, I've seen that in my life so many times. Brant asks, if you could wave your magic wand over the MacBook lineup and bring either cellular connectivity or face ID oh, to the entire line, which would you choose? Now, Brant wants to know just which would we choose. Yeah, cellular, because Touch ID is fine. And cellular is a great feature that, although we just said, may not sell as many computers as a touchscreen, I think it's a very great and convenient feature. And I know you can tether, but you know what? I don't like tethering. It's not always reliable. It's kind of inconvenient. It drains the battery of the device that you are tethering to. Um, not a, like I think that there's real value in being able to pay that upgrade to your uh, cell provider and get data wherever you go with your laptop. And Face ID, while nice, and I would like to see it, uh, we have Touch ID and on, like, this is a MacBook question. Every MacBook has a keyboard with a Touch ID sensor on it. It's That's good enough. Like, it's on a, on a display, uh, on an iMac, something like that, Face ID would be nice. But um, is it necessary on a MacBook? I don't think it is. We're in agreement on that one. Like, I would like tethering for that reason. Like, it's wild to me. Like, I'm going to use the battery of two devices so I can get an internet connection. Like, just that, just so inefficient, frustrating. I would prefer that over Face ID. Because as you say, especially on a laptop, Touch ID is really easy. Really easy. It is. It is. It's there on all of them, and it works great, right? It's 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 different if you're, like I am, sitting at a desk here where I've disassembled the keyboard and made a little touch id thingy like it would be great if the 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 screen could just go oh it's jason and that would be fine but like on a laptop i i i i'm never like oh no i must move my finger to it would be nice to have but it's not like i would take cellular over it any day christian asks what was your favorite or most listened to album from 2022 um being Funny in a Foreign Language by the 1975. It turns out that if the 1975 release an album in a year, that's pretty much going to be the album I listen to the most. That's what I've learned. They're my favorite band of the moment. And they have been my favorite band of the moment since I discovered them whenever that was five years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, definitely the 1975. Very good album. Mine is Surrender by Maggie Rogers. Mm. Also good album. S- similarly, like if Maggie Rogers releases an album, it's going to be my album of the year. I think she is incredible. Like her body of work across two albums is about as good as for me you could ever find in a singer-songwriter. The opening song, Overdrive, on her yeah. album Surrender, is legitimately one of my favorite songs of all time. Mm. It is a if you just listen to that one song, if it doesn't blow you away, like I'm surprised. Uh you know, then you can just stop there. But there's another song, Horses, where sometimes, you know, I know this song very well. Sometimes I just listen to the album, Horses comes on, makes me cry. Completely random. It's just a beautiful song. She has just one of the greatest voices uh, yep. maybe ever. So, And I love I love her. She's a, um, I loved her album, Heard It In A Past Life. Yeah. Um, I don't like Surrender as much as Heard It In The Past Life. I think that's my, I think that's my issue with it okay. more than anything else. But it's a good album and she's a great artist. And I love that she is a, she's like a folk singer who also understands like modern, lots of modern music techniques and styles. Yeah. Yep. And it's yep. a great, I know we've talked about her before. It's just a fun fusion of those things that it's like, 
what if somebody with real strong folk impulses was making modern music in in 2022, which is Maggie Rogers. You've just described Maggie Rogers, and she's great. Like, she has this talent, which I feel like she can sing while she's breathing in and out. Which is like, because sometimes she just continues making different noises for like a really long time in a way that does not feel like it is humanly possible. Oh. And so Maggie Rogers is awesome. Maybe she's a robot. Jason wants to know, this. Pro- I don't know if this it's is you, me. you can tell me. It's not me. And I assume this is directed at me. Why have you gone from HomePod minis to a Sonos system? So, so clarification, I had HomePods uh, rather yep. than HomePod minis. But I can give you a bunch of reasons. So... The Sonos app is awesome. The fact that you can sign in to multiple streaming services from multiple people and have it all in one view, all accessible to everyone in that house is fantastic, right? So like Adina has a very good curated like favorites list on her Spotify that I really like. There is literally no way for her to share that to me on Apple Music and it stay up to date. But at home, I can just choose that on Sonos and the Sonos app. It is so easy to group and ungroup speakers on an ad hoc basis inside of the app. Like if maybe I want to turn it off upstairs, or I want to turn on these two downstairs, or I want to change it. Same with the uh, audio levels. You can control them all independently or as a group. It's so much easier to control music in general and where it's playing rather than using the very clunky controls that are built into iOS to do this. Like the control center thing is a nightmare. Um, what I like is that this is Sonos's entire business. Like this is all they do. So they have to put the best effort into making this overall experience and hardware the best it can be. Then they have options with their devices. They have devices with line-in support. So I have a device where like a Sonos 5, I've plugged my turntable into it. I can put records on it and play that music in my entire home. Apple don't have that. Uh, they have battery-powered options if you want that. They have soundbar options. It goes on and on and on. Like, I just for me, for what I want with music and even, I think, now television audio, Sonos is the right call. That's why. Okay. I, I use Sonos speakers in my office, and I like it. I use HomePods in my living room, and I like them too. Yep. I'm not as enamored with Sonos's app okay. as you are. Mostly, again, that's because I do a lot of ma- music listening on my Mac. And the Sonos app on the Mac, eh, it's not that yeah. great. It's f- I mean, I like that it exists, but like I don't really manage my music on my Mac. Well, and I also listen, I have an iTunes library that includes my music and it includes um, Apple Music stuff and they're intermixed in the music app. Uh, and the Sonos app doesn't really have that experience. Yeah, it's just it's, Apple Music. It's, it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's fine. What I have learned is that um, that I think it's more stable when I do it from the Mac? Well, no. Actually, no. It, the stability is about the same um, using Sonos and using the music app. Um, the part part that surprised me is that uh, I, I had a trial for Spotify, which I no longer have. Um, and Spotify's app has the Sonos protocol built into it, so it just directly connects to the Sonos speakers and tells them to stream from Spotify. Mm-hmm. And that was way more reliable than AirPlaying from my Mac. But yeah. I also didn't like the Spotify app on my Mac. So here we are. Yeah, I think that's called Spotify Connect. Yeah. I think Sonos built in Spotify's system to allow that to work. It's basically Chromecast for audio. 
and and it's basically like AirPlay 2, right? If you do AirPlay 2 right, what you do is you mm-hmm. say to the HomePod or other speaker, go play this audio file, and it does the work, and your device is controlling it but not doing all of that work. But strangely, not as reliable. Sonos is AirPlay 2, but yeah, who knows? Sonos is as reliable doing AirPlay 2 as, as the music app is reliable doing AirPlay 2, which is kind of reliable sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Dr. Arden asks, would you ever attend CES? And I will amend this to be have you as well. Well, Mike, would you ever attend CES? Yes. Just to have done it. I don't want to go and report on it, but it just seems like a weird thing to do once, but that's it. Friends, I got a little story for you. It's very little. I've been to CES many times. When it was not uh, conflicting with Macworld Expo, they would sometimes send me. Um, as I rose in the company at IDG, uh, they they wanted me there. That Macworld and PC World did stuff together. Uh, how we had a trailer uh, on the parking lot and we'd do coverage and it was a whole thing. I hate CES. I hate it. I hate it. I don't really like Las Vegas. And a lot of the things that appeal about Las Vegas are things that don't appeal to me. And if you love Las Vegas, great. I have friends who love Las Vegas. It doesn't really appeal to me. I don't really like it. I think it's kind of gross. Las Vegas, when it's entirely full of tech industry people and hangers on and marginally related to tech industry, but they come to CES because they've got a booth in the giant airplane hangar warehouse number five on the giant campus it's unwalkable it's you can't see it all it takes days to walk through it all you know all these things so that vegas is even worse than the vegas i don't already like so there's Mm -hmm. that you can't as a person unless you have a very specific area of specialization you can't really cover ces you have to very you have to very much focus because it's enormous um so from a from a journalism standpoint it's not great also, many of the announcements at CES are a joke because they don't ever come true. And there's a lot of ploys and a lot of a lot of like showbiz nonsense that doesn't go anywhere and do anything. So on that level, it's kind of a waste of time too. So suffice it to say, I don't like CES. Would I ever attend CES? Let me put it this way. There was a period, a low period in my in my final year at IDG where I decided I was gonna leave. And I quit. And they asked me, uh, where are you going? And I said, nowhere. I just can't work here anymore, which is not what you want to hear as a supervisor of somebody who's quitting. Cause it's like, Oh no. <laughs> What's happened? And, and they're yeah. like, please, please, please stay. Please, please, please stay. And I had basically two conditions under which I would stay. Cause they're like, we're new management. We're going to do things different. We're going to turn this around friends. They didn't turn it around. Um, the person who said this to me was, was fired. Uh, but I was like, okay, I was a sucker. I should have quit. I should have said no. But I said yes. My two, my two things that I said was, one, uh, if we're going to go through another, because we were about to lay a bunch of people off. And I said, okay, one, if we go through another big layoff like this down the road, please just lay me off because I don't want to, I'm not going to go through that again. And that's what they did. Thank you very much, people who were remaining after you got rid of everybody. Uh, my second uh argument about like what I would be what I would have to do if I was going to be convinced to stay was don't send me to CES literally number two was <laughs> don't send me to CES and you know what we had a whole they agreed to it and then like a week later they're like what do you mean he somebody said what do you mean Jason's not going to CES and they came back to me and they said about the CES thing and I'm like guys I told you 
no CES. And in the end, what we negotiated was I went to CES for one day. I flew in in the morning. I flew out in the evening. I was there for a single day, didn't sleep in in Vegas, just did whatever stupid stuff they wanted me to do. So would I ever attend CES? No, no. You would have to pay me. You would have to pay me a lot of money, I guess is what I'm saying. Everybody's got a price. Uh, if you paid me a lot of money, but willingly to just go to CES to do my job, no, 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 no. I hate it. It's terrible. If you would like to send in a question for us to answer <laughs> on the show, you can use question mark ask upgrade in the Relay FM members Discord, or you can send in some feedback for us. Go to upgradefeedback.com or click the link in your show notes, and you can fill in the feedback there, follow up, and also your ask upgrade questions. Thank you to everybody that has done that. If you want to find us online, go to sixcolors.com for Jason Snell. Uh, he, Jason also hosts many shows here on Relay FM. And at the incomparable, uh, I am also hosting many podcasts here at Relay FM, and you can find products that I make along with CGB Gray at CortexMerch.com. Thank you to Ladder and Rocket Money for their support of this week's episode, and thank you for listening. Also, thank you to our members who listen to us on Upgrade Plus. Uh, we'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Have fun at CES, Mike. <laughs>